going on, trail runners? Welcome to the end of 2019. Or maybe it's the very beginning of 2020, depending upon when you are listening to this. Hope your weeks are going well. Hope your training is going good. Hope you're starting to lay out what 2020 is going to look for you from a training and a racing perspective. The end of the year always offers up this just really interesting project that we see Ultra Running Magazine put on in their Ultra Runner of the Year and Performance of the Year rankings. What they do is they get a team of people together, and this year it seems to be about 30 strong. And Tropical John Manager puts together this elaborate spreadsheet, uh, which he actually shared with me this year because uh, I told him I was putting this podcast together. Uh, he puts together this elaborate spreadsheet of all of the top performances across the entire the entirety of the year for all of the North American, both the men and the female runners. And this group of athletes and race directors and journalists and knowledgeable people in the sport get to kick it around and determine who they feel are <clears throat> the top ultra runners of the year and who has the top performances of the year. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of the people who cast those ballots end up putting their ballots out publicly. Some of them keep them to themselves, but they're all collected by ultra running, Ma- ultra running magazine. And in their February issue, they start to publish the results. They're going to start to leak out the results for ultra runner of the year, usually on January 1st. So you guys can look forward to that and keep track of that through Instagram and Twitter. But in order to peel a process back a little bit, I got two of the more prolific voters in this entire process. And we wanted to discuss who they thought were the ultra runners of the year on both the men's and women's sides and what they thought the performances of the year were on both the men's and the women's side. Uh, First up, we had Megan Hicks, who needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Megan Hicks of I Run Far. Uh, She gave us her opinions on these two particular aspects uh, from her snowy home in Moab, Utah. And I also brought on board one of the original gangsters in the ultra running world, sometimes known as the godfather of ultra running, Topher Gaylord. Uh, He was the first American to run in the UTMB, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, and has been around the sport just for forever. And I know from personal experience, having many, many conversations with Topher over the years, how much work he puts in to this process every single year. It's like another two or three full-time jobs uh, for him, as well as a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the other ultra runner of the year voters. I got both of these two together to kick around their thoughts on the performances of the year, the ultra runners of the year, and really see to, and and really to pick their brains and uh, see what their opinions are on kind of what went down. We had a really fun conversation. Uh, We also opened it up to some theoretical bantering at the end, and you guys will just have to wait and see what that is all about. But the conversation was really fun. Uh, I had a great time with these two, and I really appreciate their time. Uh, Before we get into it directly, if you have not had a chance to participate in Iron's Far End of the Year Pledge Drive, do yourself a favor go do it. Brian and Megan, they are hands down the hardest working people in the sport. They bring so much to the table in terms of 
race coverages and the articles that they curate and all the interviews that they do of people at the finish line. It's just an incredible resource that we should all treasure in the ultra running community. So if you haven't done so already, go to I Run Far, participate in their end of year pledge drive and you know help, help keep this thing going because it is not easy what they do. Uh, second thing I want to mention is that we're having a little bit of trouble with, uh, Topher's microphone. I tried to clean it up as much as possible, but as a lot of these remote interviews happen, uh, sometimes there are just uncontrollables out there. So sorry for that. Uh, hopefully the audio turns out great because the conversation is fantastic and it was really fun. So without any further ado, you guys, here we go. Topher Gaylord, Megan Hicks, on the ultra runners of the year and the performances of the year for 2019. Suffice it to say that both of your ballots are in, right? Uh, yep, my ballot's in. They're in and I made a mistake on one and I tried to correct it. It was too late to correct it, so I feel so sad. What did you make I, a mistake on? I forgot about Stephen Moore's um, course record, or age group course record at uh, Western States. The age group records and performances can kind of be tricky just because there's a ton of them, right? Well, and just how do you how do you value it? You know, there's so many fast people in their fifties on the age groups, but then I'm super inspired by these people in their seventies and eighties that are, you know, that, that sort of rose to, to my, uh, top of my list, which are, which are different. I mean, it's a hard one to be, to evaluate because some people go for these fast age group records for the people who are just entering because it's over 50 and over. And then there's, I'd sort of always, I always throw on at least two or three, that are in those, you know, the oldest for a distance is always inspiring to me. That's exactly like, what I do, Topher. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like half so, and half or like yeah, half and half. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always, I always end up finding that I get the oldest folks. I, unless there's a really f- super standout performance in the fifties, I usually sort of go to, um, the oldest finisher of a distance as my age group winner. So it just depends on the force ranking. Yeah. You know, the process that you guys are involved in, uh, John Menninger is always described as this, as this thing where you're trying to compare apples, oranges, bananas, and throw whatever other fruit that you want to into that whole thing. And so I don't envy any, anybody in this whole process trying to try to determine what's greater than what or what performances stand out to what other performances and and even on the ultra runner of the year side of things, how to combine all of those into essentially one composite who did the best out, out of the entire year. So what, why don't we start out with how like the ballot process works and how each of your individual research uh, processes work, starting out with Megan, why don't you take us through how that worked for you this year? Yeah, sure. We get an email from Ultra Running Magazine via Tropical John Medinger, and he sort of gives us a bullet point list of things to consider. And it's basically, you know, we're voting on North American runners running ultras anywhere in the world. Um, He specifies that 
the performance of the year is one great performance, whereas ultra runner of the year, you should be considering the full body of work, but there's no recommendations on like, um, what full body of work is, which I think leaves things open to subjective interpretation from each of the voters on the panel. You know, what is that three ultras? Is that five ultras? Is that 10 ultras? Um, and then he tells us that the first emphasis should be on performances in competitive events where a large number of top runners are competing. And then, of course, head to head competition. If you've got, you know, people on your list who've competed against each other a couple times in the year and somebody beat somebody or it was a draw, um, that's a consideration in terms of creating your ranking. And um, one other recommendation from ultra running magazine which i find fascinating is that they recommend that we vote with the idea that versatility is a plus so a runner who has a great performance on um shorter distances and then longer distances technical trails more runnable terrain roads trails um that is considered um something we should be thinking about when we're when we're voting but aside from that it's pretty um open in terms of how each of us are to make our make our choices. And I think there's around 30 people who are given the ballot, um, though I do know that there are some uh, folks who don't quite make the deadline. So I don't know how many they end up incorporating um, year to year. And in terms of how I sort of interpret the process or what we've been told to do or what I add on to recommendations from ultra running is, I always try to think about what I think my personal biases might be. Um, I know like for sure my bias is races that I go to in person, either to crew or pace a friend to, you know, if I happen to be there running myself or if I'm there covering the race for I run far, I think I am apt to have biases toward the, those races. Cause I get really into the story, like following it from start to finish. So I get really excited about how runners do. Um, I do. I also think that there are certain times of the year where I just don't pay attention to races quite as much as I do other races. Like we all need some downtime and we take vacations and stuff. So I kind of miss, I know I miss top per- performances here and there. So I, I you know, that's a bias I need to kind of watch for when I start this. Um, for me, choosing performance of the year is a lot easier. Um, I, yeah, I um, am able to sort of write those down real quick and then be pretty happy with them. I don't, I don't switch them around. Um, Ultra runner of the year is a lot, is a lot harder for me. Um And how I go about choosing is for me, it's all about uh, first the performance, like if there's a world record performance, almost always that goes to the the top of my ranking. And then after that, uh, races where a person performs like first, second, third, and there's a lot of competitive depth um, with like international competitive competitive depth, like as a step above national competitive depth and then regional Um, and then I kind of put like the idea of American records or potentially there've been a couple instances of American age group records, um, as something to consider though, some, uh, American records are like, they're pretty longstanding. It's a really like badass record and some are a little bit more like there's room for it to grow. 
Yeah, we're going to talk um, about then, that in a little bit. And I, I, I guess that's about it. But yeah. Um, and then kind of, oh, I want the other thing I wanted to say was that for me, what I think of as um, like a full year's body of work is three to four, four ultras. And if somebody has been super prolific and super um, successful, like I think you kind of have to think about that. But I really um, appreciate runners who don't run a ton of ultras and do really well at, you know, the three or four that they stand up to. And so for me, I think a person can be ultra runner of the year really high up on the list with three or four really successful ultra runs. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit more and more pan out where runners are being and I think this is a healthy thing where runners are being a little bit more choosy about the races that they really peak for and the races that they go to in order to essentially extend their careers. It's, it's a little bit more rare that we see the serial racers that are always at the top of the podium where they're racing eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 times a year and coming in the top three in each, in, in each one of those. And I, I think that that's long-term good for the sport to see a little bit more of that, uh, a little bit more of that pick and choose style, uh, of racing versus tagging on a bunch of races that, you know, that just seem to go on forever. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, we have so many now heartbreaking stories of, you know, runners as AJW Andy Jones Wilkins likes to say that have like supernova explosive careers. And then they just can't stay where they are because they're just doing a bit too much. And, and that's heartbreaking. All right. Toph, do you have anything to add to your personal ultra run of the year and performance of the year process that you go through? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been, uh, so I've been on the voting panel since 2012 and I would say the biggest change that I've seen, I mean, every year there continues to be just mind blowing, inspiring performances. I mean, the, the speed in competition has been, massively transformational in the last, you know, five to seven years. And, and honestly, it's, it's, it continues to get better uh, every year for the past 10 years. And so it's made the, it's made it more difficult, the voting process, I think for me, mm. um, because also there's been a proliferation of, of running races and, and Megan spoke to it, you know, just about like really focusing in on, on, on looking comprehensively at, at all of the results and, um, and looking at which events have been the most competitive. So I actually, you know, if we look at it, there's, like you said, there's about 30 voters and it's a combination of athletes, coaches, um, you've got press and, and, um, brands, I think that are in there as well. Um, and then you've got ultra running cognoscente that are, that are, you know, just students of the sport that are on the voting panel. And it's not so different than college football rankings. I mean, there's subjectivity in it and you, you absolutely, you know, bring your personal biases. I try to take a really, um, methodical approach and you know this year the ballots were due uh christmas eve which uh made for some uh cramming a bit for finals but i <laughs> i always really like to take my time and like megan i have a much more challenging time um force ranking the top 10 of ultra of the year both for men and for women and so what i normally do is i get a collection 
of about 13 to 14 athletes. I don't put them in order. Um, and then I actually take, there's a spreadsheet that um, Tropical John Mettinger sends over. I reformat so I can sort that by um, a variety of different um, uh, filters, uh, looking at, um, top events that I believe are the most competitive in the year based on who is at the events, um, wins, course records. And, um, and so I cut the data a lot of different ways to begin to build out my force ranking of the top 10, and that always, it, just like Megan was describing, that's that's the most time-consuming work. And the hard thing is, you know, I think the top three to four, I, I would guess, are very similar across most of the voters. From sort of four to ten, I think that's where the subjectivity comes in um, to play in terms of body of work. And and um, and I also would say I, pri- I probably prioritize, for me, for top three to five on my ultra of the year ranking. I definitely, I'm probably a little old school this way, but I definitely consider a hundred mile performance as critical to that, um, ultra of the year performance, certainly in the, in the top five. Um, I'll take some really fast, um, perhaps runners in the bottom half of the top 10, um, that maybe had a cluster of, of really impressive runs, but maybe not, um, a hundred mile knockout of the park run. Um, and they'll show up in my top 10. So, um, I also look when it, when I think about versatility, I really look now, if I saw an athlete that had a cluster performances in one geographic region only say the Southwest of the U S or the, uh, Southeast of the, the U S, um, and they really didn't race anywhere else. I would probably rank them much lower, um, than someone who actually went and performed in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, there's so many races in, in Europe and Asia, um, here in North America and anyone that's, that's raced in foreign countries knows how difficult it is to manage your, your training, your tapering and your, and your basically showing up just able to, to run well and, and, and mentally, uh, drive through that. So most of the people on my top 10, um, all include really, um, meaningful and high quality international performances as well. Mm-hmm. And and then the only other thing I'd add is, you know, in performance of the year, um, similar to, to Megan, I really look at um, standout performances, so always look at course records um, and or world records, American records. Um, and then I'll just look at um, exceptional head to heads uh, as well. Um, and then finally, on age group performances, I really look at um I look at a combination of breakthrough performances probably with the folks in, in age group, they go 50 and older. So I'll look at really standout performances in that 50 year old range. And then I'll look at really the oldest runners that are going, um, fast uh, or just long at a distance. I mean, I, you know, I, I had, I think Don Winkley who ran, you know, 326 miles across the year, six day race. And he's mm. 80 years old. That to me is just totally inspiring. Total badass. Yeah. Total badass. Amazing. 
Um, okay, we're we're gonna come back to the some of the things that you guys were talking about on the ultra run of the year side a little bit later. And cause I think a lot of what you guys were mentioning in terms of versatility, not only versatility across distances and across different types of terrain, but Topher, as you mentioned, versatility almost across geography is what you're yeah. just talking about. It makes it a, a, a really interesting discussion, but to start out with, let's talk about what you guys feel are the individual performances of the year on the women's and the men's side. And Topher, you're going to lead off here. We're going to first talk about who you have as the top three women's performances of the year. Why don't you run down all three of them and, and give us a little bit of commentary on why you feel those kind of rose to the to the top of the heap for you. Right on. Okay, so um, top performances of the year. I had Camille Herron's um, – World Championship 24-hour world record, uh, which she uh, she beat her own world record uh, one year later, and that that ranked for me top performance of the year. Um, and and then I had um, Courtney DeWalter's UTMB uh, win and champion race uh, at UTMB as number two, and I had I had that as number two. Um, behind Camille's, uh, world record performance, primarily, I mean, Courtney had a tremendous race, but I bet if you ask Courtney, if that was her performance of the year, I'm not sure she would say that was her performance of the year. Uh, matter of fact, in, in her interview at the end, she was sort of surprised she was able to hang on less. <laughs> um, so if you were there live and we, we were, and we were calling it and it was, it was an impressive run. She ran out hard, um, and winning UTMB for me is a performance of the year, um, effort, but that's why it ranked behind Camille's, uh, 24 hour world world record. Um, and then I had Sabrina Stanley's, um, reunion race, diagonal de Fou, um, as number three. And, um, I haven't been to reunion. I've spoken with a, a lot of folks that have, it's a, it's a brutal course. There's many Americans that have gone down in that course. And, um, and so I've got a lot of respect for that. I think Sabrina being that she raced primarily internationally this year, um, I don't think she was on a lot of folks radar and, and I don't know that she was in the mix for me in in overall, um, ultra of the year, but in terms of single performances, those were the three. Hmm. Megan. Um, well, Topher and I chose exactly the same for, um, number one and number two. <laughs> um, and yeah, for me, Camille's 24 hour world record, she just bettered the record by so much she sent you know women's 24 hour running into a whole different category and she was only what was it like 8k or eight and a half k behind the men's winner at the end yeah, i mean something right. it just categorically insane and um for me like the reports coming out at the location i wasn't there but i understand it was not ideal conditions for running really fast like the the lay out of accessing your uh, aid stations and uh, sort of the order of where people were instructed to run and which side they were to pass each other and some strange turns and stuff to get in and out of the track facility where the aid stations were just were not um, ideal. And Camille just had a 
in my, like my mind is blown. Like when I look at those numbers. So for me, she was performance of the year, like not even close. Um, <laughs> and uh, Courtney DeWalter's win at UTMB. Um, for me, there is no other performance stage for the sport of trail ultra running right now than the competitive depth of UTMB. It's just, you don't get that anywhere else right now. And yeah, I totally agree with Topher that she had to suffer pretty hard to get her win. And she probably would agree with us in saying that her potential there is a lot higher than what she did that day, but she was far and away the better, the best woman there. And to, to stand on the, the finish line of the most competitive trail ultra marathon in the world as the champion with all of those logistics that Topher mentioned about how difficult it is to be a North American runner to, you know, go to Western Europe and dominate is, is pretty amazing. After that, I had a really hard time choosing my three, four, and five women's performance of the year. Um, my The three choices that I just couldn't let go of and couldn't, um, had a hard time ciphering out were Katrin Jones's ninth place at the Comrades Marathon, Pam Smith's fourth place at the IAU 24-hour world championships behind Camille and Claire Gallagher's win of Western States. Um, ultimately, I chose, I looked at, um, in terms of the competitive depth of how close the the lead women were to each other at Comrades and 24-hour world championships. And um, I think Katrin's getting into the top 10 in that women's race this year was a pretty, pretty amazing feat. Topher, any banter on the other side of the court? On those? Yeah, well, you know, I, I agree. It gets, it gets tough. Um, uh, interestingly, I had Claire was also in the mix for me in the top five. And, um, and I, you know, I mean, was, I believe it was the second fastest time in Western States history behind Ellie Greenwood's um, record. Um, You're so correct it was, on it you're correct. It was an impressive, uh, it was an impressive performance. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think, you know, I think the one, two, uh, my guess is that's likely where it will come out. I'll be really interested in where number three, um, ultimately comes out with, with the rest of the, the voting panel. But, um, I do, I do what I think is really interesting with, um, both Megan's picks and my picks were that they were primarily um, international races. And I think that's what's really, for me in the voting, has really changed um, how I'm viewing the voting now, where, you know, I think Camille's um, performance, just another example. I mean, it was, it was, it was an international race and she absolutely crushed her own world record by, I mean, I think you're, you're right on Megan. She's so thoroughly dominated that performance. And that's why for me, it was also sort of a, uh, a really easy pick for, for number one. All right, you guys, let's, let's move on to the men's performance of the year. Megan, we're going to have you start out with this one. Who do you have for your top three men's? performances of the year top three again i i had a pretty easy time with one and two and then i was riding the struggle bus pretty hard for number three um i picked the two uh world records set in ultra running this year as my top two performances of the year 
Um, it was a hard choice to pick between the two, um, but Zach Bitter's 100-mile world record at six days in the Dome, he ran 11 hours and 19 minutes and uh, battered the world record, uh, which had been set 17 years before by Russian, at, which was 11.28. Um, and honestly, I haven't watched a lot of track races. I don't know a ton about it, but I've read there's a really... Um, in-depth description of the previous world record holders race, Oleg Karadinovs. I'm not sure if I got that pronunciation right. And from all descriptions, he ran out of his mind that day. And so for me, like, you know, hearing, you know, expert track people from a couple decades ago saying running that was a mind-blowing performance then, you know, what Zach Bitter did at Six Days in the Dome earlier this year. He bettered it by so so much. I mean, seconds per mile is pretty amazing. Um, my second performance of the year was Jim Walmsley's 50-mile world record at the Project Carbon X out along the, the river in California. Um, he bettered a previous world record by 43 seconds. The world record was a lot older set in 1984 by Bruce Fortis, South African. Um, and I guess for me, it came down to a couple of reasons why I chose that for performance number two versus one. Um, one, he bettered the record by a lot less of a margin than Zach Bitter bettered his record. And um, two, like Project Carbon X was a race. Like they, Hoka won one, uh, crossed all the T's, dotted the I's to set it up as a true race where uh, records could be set. But it was a project that was planned with Jim Walmsley, either working on the 50-mile world record and or the 100K world record. Everything was set up for him. Um, in my mind, that's a lot different than, you know, uh, signing up for a race that has all of these other independent variables that you have to fold yourself into. Um, it was this project folded in, into Jim Walmsley. Um, so for that reason, I picked Zach Bitter's record as performance of the year over Jim Walmsley's. And then uh, my third, I picked Jim Walmsley's course record at Western States. He reset his own course record by 21 minutes. Um, it, yeah, what he's doing on that course the last couple of years is just like cannot comprehend, cannot make brainwaves function to comprehend <laughs> <laughs> we should ask jim that for the last two or three miles he had enough brain waves to comprehend but that's another seriously discussion. all right so who you got top three so, men's performances so, of the year yeah really interesting um megan and i both very similar slightly different order but exact same three performances. So huh. I had, uh, you know, and I've, it's interesting because I've had some conversations with some folks after I submitted my ballot um, around Zach Bitter's, uh, you know, uh, 100 mile split, six days in the dome, 1119 versus Walmsley's course record. I voted, um, Jim Walmsley's Western States course record as performance of the year. I think, you know, he and Jared Hazen pushing each other mm. all day, the heat and the conditions, you know, one argument is, Hey, you have perfectly simulated, um, uh, environment 
on a track. So actually a track performance is actually a more difficult performance to your point you know the, the russian that was a record that was set in 2002 it was a it was it was a mind-boggling both are mind-boggling um performances so i i, I don't even diminish for a, a second one over the other it was a it was really hard to decide but i guess i prioritized the western states performance because of uh, the variables in the course that you have to overcome um, uh, versus a really um, a controlled environment. So there's much more uncontrolled environment in something like Western states. And, um, and it was not an easy year. So, you know, Jim was able to lower his record. And I also think that the level of competition in the race forced Jim to rise to the occasion and he ran out of his mind. And I mean, I was down at no hands bridge when he came across literally sprinting across no hands bridge, never looking back. And um, five and a half inch vertical travel. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's so it was, it was incredible. And so I had, um, yeah, I had Walmsley is, um, number one, I had Zach Bitter's performance, uh, six days in the dome for his hundred mile split. Uh, is number two. And then I had Walmsley's 50 mile world record at project carbon X is number three. You guys know who gets screwed out of all of this. <laughs> it's, it's Jared Hazen. Seriously. It's Jared. We love you brother, but dang it, man. Like if just a couple of things were different, this whole conversation revolves around Jared. This is true. He, this is true. And, and I, you know, it's amazing because Walmsley, you know, at the finish at, at Western States is essentially acknowledge that. I mean, you know, he and he and Jared are roommates and and it truly is an example of steel sharpening steel. I mean, Jared, um, he literally helped bring the very best out of of Jim Walmsley that day. And I think I think Jim would acknowledge that. And and probably Jim he brought the very best out of Jared that day as well. Um, and, and, you know, those guys had the same throwdown at Santa Barbara nine trails. I mean, if you really look at the, the talent that showed up for that event, which isn't historically a super competitive event, but because all of some of the top talent from, from North America came, it made that an incredibly competitive day as well. And, um, and I think I think that group down there in Flagstaff really helps get the very best of each other. And and they're helping each other raise the level of of ultra running around the world. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I want to put a little I, I want to put a little bit more of like a, a little bit more of a magnifying glass on an aspect that, that both of you have mentioned in this performance of the year uh, uh, discussion and. This, this gets brought up every year when we're talking about performances of the year and this ultra runner of the year. And I'm going to, it normally gets brought up in the context of trail versus track performances, but I'm going to put a slightly different, slightly different spin on it that I think is a little more, it's just a little bit more correct and poignant. And this is the concept of performance context. So with races like Western States and UTMB, as both of you guys have mentioned, Dozens of runners each and every single year come out to those races and they spill their guts out trying to win the race. And what 
a consequence of that is that year after year after year, we have this entire context of many, many, many performances over roughly the same course and over roughly the same types of conditions. So you can look at Jim Walmsley's Western States 100 record and you can compare it to not only just the winners of the last 20 some odd years, but all the people who got second, like Jared, right? And got third and fourth and things like that. And you have this entire body of performance context to stack it up against. You don't have that quite as in as quite of a robust fashion on the track and the timed elements. And it always creates this really interesting proposition for the people that are voting for the performances of the year in the ultra run of the year to kind of put that in the right place. Now that's not to say that the timed and track performances are worth any less than the trail ones. It's just harder to have a grasp on them because there's not dozens of athletes competing in the same discipline on the same course at the same time of year, every single year, year in and year out. If you just look at the hundred mile, you know, world record, I mean, how many, you know, that's, that's a record that stood for 17 years. And just the sheer fact that the Western States course record to use that as an, as the analog has progressed so much year after year after year after year. And this one other record, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm using, you know, I'm using Zach's record as, as, as an example, but there are many other track records that are very similar, but that record hasn't quite progressed that quickly. I think illustrates this performance context. So I, I was wondering if you guys could kind of shed some light on how you two individually weed through that. Cause it's super difficult in, in, I don't envy your position at all in trying to in, in trying to come up with answers to that. Topher, you want to start us out on it? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really good point, and I think you're digging at the the exact um, the, the 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 exact challenge of the voting process in apples, oranges, and bananas. I mean, really, the 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 performances in an event like Western States that's got one of the longest hundred it's got the longest hundred mile running history in the world um, versus a track performance are literally apples and oranges. And so I think, um, I think there's no right answer um, and no wrong answer, but I do, I, you know, you, you know, from my voting, I basically reconciled that through um, believing that head to head, um, competition of the the best um runners of either the era or the time or the day were lining up against each other in those in those um uncontrollable environments mm-hmm. um for me um just give uh a higher ranking on performance of the year it's not so dissimilar to like trying to compare um you know, climbing Everest versus a super hard bouldering problem in a, in a climbing gym. (laughs) Like, like that's how, that's how many variables there are on climbing a big mountain versus how many variables there are on a track. I mean, I, and I, I do not want to diminish the, the absolute 
just purity of putting one foot in front of the other as hard as you can go for a hundred miles. Cause that's exceptional. Um, but I do view them very differently and I view them both as exceptional performances. That's why they ultimately end up both at my one and two. I just put a little bit more, I just end up prioritizing, um, performances that have more variables to contend with. Huh, that's interesting. Megan. Um, well, I guess the first thing that I would say is that I think, um, there would be some experts like in road ultra running and track ultra running history who might disagree with you like track, uh, track racing and road ultra running has a pretty robust history. And some, some of those distances have been raced longer than Western States has existed, but I think it, it objectively would be fair to say that, um, the competitive depth of road and track ultra running uh, just hasn't progressed as fast as trail ultra running is at least in the last decade. Um, so yeah, there, I mean, I think, you know, historically 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, road ultra running track ultra running was a bit more popular than it is now. And there was kind of a, you know, a first heyday of it. And then there was this uh, subsidence and, um, you know, people in that, in, in that part of ultra running, you're talking about, you know, a, a, a rise in interest, a rise in participant numbers at these events, uh, increase in the actual number of events. Um, so perhaps a, a second heyday of road and track ultra running is coming. So um, I think like the, what, I think Topher's interest in trying to um, interpret and negotiate through all those complexifying environmental vari variables is amazing. And I think that's something that I've thought about a lot less um, than he has, but it's actually giving me like great things to great things to think about and ponder for the future. And I, I think it's a great example of like, in so many cases, there's no singular right answer um, in voting for performance of the year, ultra runner of the year, which is like the beauty of our sport right now and how we try to cipher out performances is there's multiple, multiple right answers, multiple top performances. Yeah. Just think about if you had some theoretical like UTMB win that was let's just say the fourth or the fifth fastest time out on the UTMB course, but, but it just happened to be held in horrendous winter conditions. The runners are getting pelted with ice and snow and rain. And there's a monsoon in the middle of the course, somehow apocalyptically or whatever, like you would then like in, to in Topher's rationale, you would then have to take the environment that, 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 that was throwing all of this adversity uh, at the athlete into consideration in this performance of the year ranking. Topher, am I understanding that correctly? That that's something that you would take into consideration like that? Well, it could be. I mean, I looked at, Bo look at Boston Marathon last year mm. um, and, you know, Des Linden's performance there was not by any stretch, one of the fastest times, but I consider it one of the greatest performances at Boston because of the adversity she overcame. I don't know. I, but yes, I, I think, I think that the conditions absolutely and the competition, um, in my mind, uh, way heavily And I mean, you know, a great example, really 
factually this year was Pau Capel's win at, at UTMB. Like I consider it wasn't the fastest time in UTMB history, but I consider that probably one of the greatest ultra running performances at, a, at the hundred mile distance uh, anywhere in the world in 2019 um, mm-hmm. because of the level of commitment. He, he, he took that race out. Um, he was the first person ever to lead the race start to finish Oof. and um, <laughs> bell to bell and pull away at the end. And so, I mean, that's so, so yes, I, I would uh, absolutely agree that like um, I, I take into the, into account those variables of, of weather and, mm-hmm. and competition probably more so than, um, the controlled environments of the track and in the road. And I think, I think Megan brings up a really good point, which is one, there's probably been a longer history of people going for those track and road ultras. But I think in the last 10 years, I do think that more of that edge has been pushed in the world of trail, um, than on the track and the road. And that by no means is saying those, those, um, course records are light or easy. I think they're, they're, they're brutally fierce. Um, uh, but they're just different. They're for me, they're apples and oranges. And for the moment, I, I do prioritize the, the, just the environmental factors. Again, maybe that's sort of the purity in more of the, the mountain and trail background that I bring to the voting process versus a road and track background. Yeah, Megan, I kind of, I kind of have the similar thought as you do where I want more people to take on the timed and the track events. Like I would, I would, I would just absolutely be tickled to see an extremely high quality hundred mile track or, or, or any sort of timed event that has 10 or 15 super high quality people just duking it out from start to finish. Like, I think that that would be a really compelling race to kind of to watch unfold and also would raise the level of the athletes and raise the level of competition just because of the head to head competitive nature to it. Uh, I also think that that's good because like the, the, t- the track and the timed events, they're relatable to the running world in a lot, uh, in a, in a lot greater fashion than some of the trail events. I mean, when Zach runs, you know, uh, 647 pace for a hundred miles, Marathon runners and other runners look at that and they can go, holy crap, that's really fast to run 100 miles. When Jim runs just a little bit over 14 hours at Western States, a lot of people who don't run the trails like have no context to that. And they just, they just kind of look at it and go, meh, and they don't understand like what an amazing performance it is because they don't understand, as Topher was mentioning earlier, some of the complexities of running on a trail with all the adverse conditions, the heat, the terrain, the elevation gain, elevation loss, crossing a river, all that kind of stuff that goes into it. I was listening to some folks have a conversation about um, track ultras and what if track ultras had um, pacers? Oh, Like, you know, somebody, because that, because there's such a mental aspect to like, um, you know, the, the timed, the timed events, it's like, how long can you go out? And like you said, hold 648, 647 pace. What if you never had to look at your watch, never had to think about, was that lap too fast? Was that lap too slow? If you had somebody you just tucked in behind and, you know, you were able to zero out that, that, that mindfulness 
part. Oh. Like, what would happen then? Oh man, that's like an, that's a, that's another topic for another podcast. Make it we can... next level pain cave. Exactly. Well, they kind of had it at Project Carbon X. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So, well, sort of. In this in this area in this era of you know the sub two hour marathon and all the contrived iterations that we're going to subsequently see after after that, I think that Megan, what you're mentioning is a, is more and more of a real possibility in the in the ultra space. I mean, Hoka's paving the way for that, and I think it's just a matter of time that we see more attempts of that nature where they're throwing in other competitors and pacers and contrived elements of the. Uh, of the performance, which just gives you guys more different types of fruits and vegetables to compare against each other at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was it was really interesting. I, on the men's side, I just found, you know, far more, and you guys touched on it a little bit at the beginning, far more fragmentation with, you know, really looking at the body of work. In the, in the past, you'd have, you know, you'd have a runner that would run you know, three or four 50 Ks, a couple of 50 milers, a, you know, even two or 300 milers. And, you know, we had, we had several, um, several of my top 10, you know, maybe only had three or four performances, but they were really thoughtful, um, thoughtfully selected races and they were highly competitive. And so they ranked high for me, even if they didn't have their body of work wasn't as, um, wide, it was deep, mm -hmm. uh, a little narrower and deeper. And, and I do think that that will continue to happen with, um, racing being, um, you know, one more races, but also athletes being more thoughtful about, you know, preserving the longevity of their, um, of their running career and their overall health. Mm. Mm. Good transition point, Topher. Let's move on to the ultra runner of the year. We're going to go men's first, women's second. This is too hard. Do we have to? Uh, you already made your votes. It's not like we're going to, you can't change your vote now. It's not like you could reach back into the ballot box and like pull the, pull it back out. Although that's going to be an interesting question. Is that the end of this? Did you change your mind about anything? I'm going to ask that once we kind of wrap this up. Uh -huh. um, all right. So if we're going to start with you, who do you have for your top three men's ultra runner of the year? Oh boy. Okay. Well, for me, number one was, was, um, quite, quite easy. Uh, I had Jim Walmsley, um, and it really was easy for me. I think, um, you know, his course record at Western States and one of the most competitive fields of the year was exceptional. Um, I think his project, um, or the, the project X, the carbon X, um, and the course and world record there, uh, 50 miles in, in 450. Um, and then, uh, the race he won in Sweden, um, ultra Vassin, who a lot of people may not be aware of it. It's, there's 1200 runners. It's a super fast race. Um, he nearly, um, got the course record there as well. And then, um, you know, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but the Santa Barbara nine trails, just with the level of, of depth and talent in that race, um, was exceptional. Jared Hazen was, I think, second to him in that race. And then he went over, I don't know if this was for, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a deep field, but, um, went over to Hong Kong and, and ran it and won another 50 miler. He won basically everything he entered this year. 
and um, had another exceptional year. So I don't even, I, I, my guess is um, virtually um, everyone will have him uh, number one, but um, I did see a few other voters that uh, disclosed publicly and uh, there are a few that did not have him number one. So um, I had Zach Bitter is number two and we've been talking a lot about Zach um, and uh, the six days in the dome. And there's no question that um, that 100 mile split um, it's six days in the dome and it 1119 is both the performance of the year. And it was really the foundation for me of his body of work. Um, his JFK, that's one of the most competitive or historically has been one of the most competitive, um, 50 milers, uh, largest 50 mile field. Um, he was second there. Uh, and, and then, um, you know, he had a he, he had a, a a win at the Whiskey Basin uh, race as well. Um, you know, he went over and, and ran Spartathlon, and um, he wasn't able to finish Spartathlon. Um, and I don't know, I don't know all the details around um, his race there. I, I actually sort of thought he was set up for an incredible um, day there, but he also he had an exceptional. I think year and, um, and then he won the San Diego, um, 100 as well. So for me, that was a, that was a massive year. We talk about runners perhaps running too much and maybe that's was a driver of Spartathlon. He had a lot of racing miles on the chassis for the year. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, he really had an exceptional year. And so he was number two for me. And then number three, I had, um, Jared Hazen and, um, you know, although Jared didn't get my performance of the year, he gets my top three and Jared, um, you know, the second place performance at Western States was also out of this mind, incredible performance. Um, and he literally, um, he ran out of his mind that day. And, and, um, and that was again, for me, the foundation of his body of work, um, his win at Lake Sonoma, also exceptional and super competitive. And then his number two at Santa Barbara nine trail. So, um, he was, he ranked high for me, but that also is an example of someone who their primary body of work was clustered in California. Mm. Um, and so to rise to the, to the very top, I think, um, something a bit more, um, international over time, but, um, he ranked high for me in terms of top three, because of how competitive each one of those three performances were that he had, um, at, uh, Lake Sonoma, Western States and in Santa Barbara, all exceptional and highly talented fields. And he crushed it. Um, he did have a couple of DNFs, um, one at Leadville. And I think his, you know, his quote at Leadville was like, man, my, my legs, by the way, he was, he was on course record, uh, pace at Leadville, I think when he dropped somewhere over hope pass. Um, but I think he acknowledged that, um, you know, he still had a lot of Western states in his legs at Leadville. Um, and I think, again, we're going to see more of 
this type of scenario where, you know, runners are trying to find each year, what are the limits of their potential and how much can they race and really race at the highest level? And I think that was a good example for Jared. Um, you know, Leadville was sort of like, okay, um, that's it for me after Western States. I think for um, Zach, it was maybe Spartathlon last year. Um, I think Courtney, it was um, Desert Souls, just 24 hours. So I think everyone is, you know, all these top runners are are finding the edges of their potential and maybe they're racing one race either too close or one too many. And, um, and so I don't count that against them um, in my voting. I really look at, in this case, Jared, I looked at head-to-head and um, and uh, the quality of the competition of those three races uh, had him raise above the rest for me in, in that third-place spot. I, I think I'm going to have like a tally board in my office somewhere <laughs> of people who have failed trying to break Matt Carpenter's Leadville record. And I'm, I might have that board for like, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years or something like that. What do you guys think? I love, I love it. And I love that you brought that up. I mean, I mean, Matt Carpenter, you know, we weren't doing all this deep, uh, analysis every year, but he still ranks in my mind is one of the greatest, um, ultra runners of all time. And in that performance at Leadville still ranks as one of the greatest of all time and um, on a harder yeah. course too. harder. Course. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It's awesome. I would- I would love to understand the physiology of it a little bit, but I've heard a number of runners say that it's so easy to run 50 miles in Leadville at Matt Carpenter pace, but it's impossible, almost impossible to even run 60 miles or 65 miles that, you know, a person who runs Matt Carpenter pace for 50 miles all the way to Winfield, then turns around and comes back over Hope Pass by the time they get back to Twin Lakes a little over 60 miles and in the race they're tanked yeah those people that say that they can run 50 miles at matt carpenter pace at leadville are fooling themselves that's, that's my <laughs> commentary on that matt's a really but good why, athlete but why is it why why have so many people said it it feels far too easy to run you know 50 miles at that pace and then the, all of a sudden blammo yeah because the leadville course like from an elevation game perspective really isn't that hard like it's a really, it's a very runnable course uh, in terms of the percentage that you run versus the percentage that you have to, that you can actually hike. And so, yeah, I mean, there are, I wouldn't say there are many, but there are a few or several that can go out and run 50 miles at that course record pace, but it's a freaking hundred mile race, not a 50 mile race, <laughs> you know, just, just make that equivalent across any endurance distance, 800 meters to the 1500 meters, right. Uh, 3k to even 5k, you know, 5k to 10k. I mean, God, it's, you could say the exact same thing. So anyway, um, Megan, give us your men's ultra run of the year. Top five. Topher or, sorry, I... top three, top three. Topher and I just are speaking the same language today, man. <laughs> right on, Megan. <laughs> uh, Jim Walmsley and Zach Better were my number one and two, and I kind of felt like it was there was no uh, the the two of them were just on a level elevated so much. Uh, they were on their own platform above the rest of the men's uh, Ultra Runner of the Year field this year for me. Um, I also everything that basically everything Topher said about Jim and Zach's performances, I would agree with. I I do want to toss in that um, Zach won the San Diego hundred mile this year, which I 
thought was fascinating because when I think of Zach, I think of him as somebody who excels when it's like a road ultra or a track ultra or like those, you know, those events where it's like mind, your mind becomes such a feature, but San Diego is a real, it's a real trail hundred miler and he uh, won it and it wasn't like easy. He had competition almost all the way to the finish. Like I think it was a really, really close finish. Passed him at um, like mile 98 or not mile, or sorry, mile 93 or 94. Yeah, exactly. So it was a, it was a, a wire to wire, like hard work and a mountain, you know, a, a, a true trail hundred miler. And for me that it showed me that, um, yeah, Zach Bitter's versatility in his just potential on lots of different surfaces and styles of racing is just um, really, really, really f- fascinating. Um, my number three was hard to choose. Um, there were two guys that were pretty close for me. In the end, I chose Tim Tollefson. Um, he won Lavaredo, um, which it takes place on the same weekend as Western States. And so I think it's uh, one of those races that at least for um, fans of North American ultra running, we often like kind of put under the carpet and forget about it and uh, barely catch up on it. But Lavaredo had one of, if not the most competitive field, one of the top two comp- most competitive fields in its history. Um, and Tim Tollefson is known for like going abroad to these mountain ultras and finishing on the podium. But that day he like just nailed it and it was no, it was no contest. He won that race. And in, in my mind, he showed his true international, like mountain ultra potential. He also took third at the Madeira Island ultra trail. Um, and I was there in person watching, uh, that run and the men's field at Madeira Island this year was a, a pretty deep field led out by, um, Francois Dehane and Francois and Tim shared the podium with Diego Pazos, a Swiss guy who had a uh, his own very incredible year of ultra running um, finishes of his own that had previously that had exceeded his own previous performances. So those three guys were, they were really pushing each other that day. Um, and then here on home train, uh, Tim won the formidable 50 K, which was this year's USATF trail 50 K championships. Um which brought a bit of competitive depth. I mean, nothing compared to those other races that he was in. Um, but for me, like him coming home and running a short race that was a national championship was sort of showing me that that sort of versatility aspect that we're asked to consider. He had a couple other races. He went to China for a a really badass 50K. He ran um, the Ruckachuk 50K. And then, of course, he had his uh, DNF at UTMB um, which I think a lot of people think about when they think about Tim Tollefson this year because of like the temporal bias of what's what's the most recent race that we can think of with these athletes. And um, UTMB is a lot fresher than things like Lavaredo or Madeira. Um, but I'm I'm sort of on the on the same side of the DNF fence as Topher that I don't I don't ding athletes, top athletes for choosing to DNF in a race. It's not any of our business to decide who we think should finish a race and shouldn't finish a race when these people are making, you know, they're making careers out of their um, using their bodies and their minds to compete. And it's their job to, to figure out how to do that best for them. So no, no dings for me for Tim Dolphson for his UTMB DNF. But some, some of the panelists actually do 
create a penalty of sorts whenever they do see a DNF. Am I correct in understanding that correct? Or am I correct in that understanding? Well, I think it's an, it, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't actually, um, spend a lot of time, um, comparing notes with other, uh, voters to know that, but I, I, it's intuitively, um, likely that, other people are looking at a body of work and if their body of work includes DNFs in some A races, they're going to use that as um, a ding against an athlete. I think Megan's point on Tim and Tim is on my top 10 as well. He just didn't rank the top three for me. Um, I think she, her logic around a number three is like absolutely solid logic. And she was there. She had, I mean, you were there, Megan, right for Madeira and for Lavaredo. Like you had a front row seat there. Uh, Not Lavaredo. We were at Western States that weekend, but I did cover, we did cover Madeira. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but those are good examples. And I think, I think that's now why the voting panel that really is tuned into the international competition helps, I think, qualify some of these international performances um, even better. Cause you, you know, you've got to understand, Hey, when Tim's racing, for example, against Francois at Madeira, um, that's, that's a different, that's a totally different level than in, and, and that basically is, I think what uh, John Mettinger is speaking about when he's saying, Hey, make sure you're comparing either head to head and truly competitive races. And so I think as the, the races continue to get more um, d- uh, diluted and diversified, knowing what races are the most competitive in the, um, in the overall global circuit is going to make, I think a more balanced um, voting process. And I think I, I would just say, you know, I think Megan's point of Tim at, at number three is all like super solid. Yeah, totally agree. Tim's one of my favorite athletes. I tell you what, after mm. he won Lavaredo, if somebody would let me, I would have bet every freaking last cent I owned that he was going to win UTMB this year. <laughs> and I would have lost it all. But I, I mean, that was such a great performance. And I felt that it set him up so well for UTMB. And I, I told, I, I told his coach this, uh, mm. after that win, I was like, dude, Tim's went, I'm probably jinxing him. I'm sorry, Tim. But I told his coach <laughs> afterwards, I was like, dude, Tim's going to win UTMB. Like hands down. He's the best runner there. We were minting Tim coin. Um, <sighs> and, uh, all our money was on Tim coin. So we were, we were all in and, and, uh, he's an absolute, uh, great friend. And, and, um, and part of it is just the passion he brings to that exact event. And, and to the all the mountain community there and and he pours his heart and soul into that race and and um it was it was i think tough for him this year but um i think as always uh, with every dnf it was a growing and learning experience for him and he'll come back stronger yeah impossible not to love that guy i want to be candid about that whole thing i think i mean tim would be the first one to say like he felt a ton of pressure going into utmb this year because of that win at Laparado. Yeah. Um, you know, he had, you know, he's been just, just right there for UTMB in the past. And he's been a, you know, a bridesmaid and a ton of different long mountain ultras abroad in the last, what, four or five or three, four years, something like that. 
But winning La Laredo in the competition that was there, I think, really set him up, especially with like European fans and yep. and his sponsors over there to have so much pressure. And I mean, everybody in Chamonix this year was talking about Tim Tollison. I mean, he mm. was carrying like the weight of the world of the trail ultra running community. I feel I feel so bad for him. Yeah, I tell you what, though, <laughs> he, Megan, athletes are going to have to get used to this, you know, because that's just the way the world is is, is running now. I mean, they're going to get on a little bit of a hot streak and everybody, the spotlight's going to get, you know, put on them. And that spotlight's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I just think it's something that, that people are going to have to contend with. But I think you can, um, and that this is like no diss on Tim at all. I think, um, like for instance, Xavier Thevenard, you know, he's a, he's a world superpower when it comes to the, the UTMB races, but he does a very good job of, staying under the radar and saying no to, you know, he, he does some press things and some PR things in the days and the week before the race, but he doesn't do everything. He doesn't say yes to everything. And his sponsors don't expect him to say yes to everything. You know, he needs, he knows what he needs to set himself up for success at that race. And I, I personally would like to see more brand sponsors, media outlets, et cetera, like giving athletes, at least a little bit of space before these major events, like let them sleep full nights, please. Uh, Thank you for saying that. I, that that, honestly, as a coach, as a coach and having to manage that, it, it drives me nuts. It makes me pull my hair out that every year is Western States and UTMB are the worst examples of this, but the athletes, they get pulled in 10 different directions. It doesn't help them that they have to have you know, five or eight different sponsors to kind of appease all at the same time. But I had an athlete this year before UTMB that had nine different sponsor obligations in like the three or four days leading up to the race. It's just too much. It's just too much. So I'm, I'm with you, Megan, totally with you on that. Well, and I, I can back it up. You know, I think, you know, it, the, the, the weight is born on a combination of the athlete and the brands and the, and the sponsors all finding that balance and even the race organization itself, right? Because there's press events that are connected to the race organization. Many of these athletes have multiple sponsors and then multiple sponsors are just lining up work for the athletes. Um, they're doing shakeout runs, you know, the most egregious are when, you know, a brand either wants to launch a product at the event (laughs) or do their photo shoot, um, uh, the day before the race or two days before the race. And I think that that's the balance that brands and athletes in events are going to have to find. And today it's, it's out of sync. And I think it, it affected a lot of, um, the American athletes, um, this year in particular, um, at UTMB just, and it's a hard balance, right? Because, you know, the athletes getting all this amazing energy from these pre-events, but it's just energy that's being expended on what you need to focus on, which is the race too much. I actually committed when I started this podcast, I committed to not doing any pre-race mm. interviews with athletes. I made one small exception with like one of the uh, pilot episodes that's going to be released in a few weeks. But outside of that, and both of you guys know this, I'm at a ton of races. I'm not getting in front of athletes in front of in, in front of their races because I don't want to I don't want to add to that. That's just a sl- shameless plug 
for the podcast. Though. I wanted to weave <laughs> yeah. that in there somehow. <laughs> no, but I also I I also think that you're not necessarily going to get the best interview or the the greatest no, content out no. of somebody when they're you know they've got three events today, like back to back to back, with a half hour to walk in between them. They're yeah. You know how do you how do you come up with something different to say? I mean, unless you're you know you're a, a trained politician or a trained speaker it's um well the, the ba- your best interviews are going to come in, in on days like days like this to- totally agree the other thing that's confounding with that and once again i've had to live through this as a coach is that is a lot of those engagements materialize at the last minute because i've gone through this with athletes and said okay what mm-hmm. are your commitments before this race what are your commitments before western states and i'll have the athlete go okay i have you know a b and c great you can do that you got those three commitments. Awesome. Let's just plan those and you'll go through that. Two days later, not only do they have A, B, and C, but they have D, E, F, G, H, I, like it just keeps going on and it all seems to come about in the, in the, like the preceding, preceding like five or seven days, right before the race. It honestly, it makes me pull my hair out. <laughs> so I just um, tell them to say no. And it's hard because, you know, they want to appease their sponsors and, you know, give the interviews and things like that. I just think we're in, um, well, we're in, you know, like it's a different kind of growing pains every couple of years that yeah. come about as we learn yeah, about what, right. what our athletes need to actually survive and thrive and what, what the brands need from the athletes to, to do their thing too. It's yeah, we're all, we're all learning as yeah, we go. Yeah. Well, that, this is another conversation for another time, but I think we're, we're, I think we're all, we've all got similar opinions here. Um, let's move on. <laughs> Last but not least, to the women's <laughs> ultra runner of the year, Megan. We're going to have you start us out here. Who are your top three women's ultra runners of the year? It was so hard, so so hard. I don't know. I can't remember what year I started doing this. It's been five or six years, approximately, that I started since I've started casting votes for ultra running magazines, ultra runner of the year. And this was by far the hardest pick of all the years that I've been doing. I think I probably lost sleep over it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, the, the number one ultra runner of the year, there was no question to it. It was just, I feel like two through eight or two through 10 could almost have been interchangeable. Um, Courtney DeWalter is my ultra runner of the year. Um, she won UTMB. She won Madeira Island Ultra Trail. She won Tarawira. She took 12th place at the IAU World Championships, which made her the third scoring member of the uh, Team USA, which was the gold medal winning team there. Which was really hard for her to pull out. If you yeah, read that race she. Report. I mean, she was. Re- I think her body was ready to be done with her season totally. at mile 20 of that race. Totally. Yeah, she. I mean multiple years in a row she's just existing on a different plane of performance i mean it's it's like floating around in the stratosphere while we're all down here you know hovering with in the fog right <laughs> um second place i chose yo wang wow she Ooh, megan <laughs> um and i uh I, I think my choice of her in second place was um, I kind of went against a little a, a little bit of my own, um, you know, the, the the way I usually go about things. But then I went with um, how I usually choose. She won North Face. 
Uh, she was second at Lake Sonoma, but I mean, she was seconds off of first place. She had an incredible run at Lake Sonoma. Um, and then she was second again at Black Canyon. Um, I don't know. There's just something about EO Wang's year this year. She didn't race with a huge amount of distance or geographic diversity. Um, but for me, like geographic diversity and, uh, yeah, geographic diversity is a lessening variable for me over the years. And I think that's because, um, we're starting, not starting. That's not the right word at all. There are people who are like committed career athletes. They, you know, they may have accessory small jobs, but they're essentially career athletes. And then we have people who have like entire other jobs outside of their running. And then there are people who are trying to make choices to um, like exist and do their sport in a more environmentally sound way. And so I, I think in the last couple of years, I've sort of personally dinged runners less for, um, not leaving their home geographies as much because I admire people who maintain like, you know, jobs or have families or do things besides ultra running and then still compete at the upper echelon. And then I also admire people who are trying to do our sport with a small environmental footprint. After all, we're like athletes out in the environment every day. Um, yeah. She, I think, she didn't run a ton of races. Um, she dropped out of Western States, um, with sickness, but I don't, I didn't ding her for that. Um, yeah, she just, for me, she turned into a different kind of runner I by like, the end of this year. I like Megan throwing in the environmental aspect there. Like you're encompass, <laughs> you're encompassing both the performance element and also, you know what? These people are just good people. So I'm going to give them some more points. He is <laughs> <laughs> a great person. I totally agree with you there. <laughs> Okay, so you guys wanted two. Who do you have for three? Um, ultimately, I chose Claire Gallagher for number three, but man, like Katie Scheid was really, 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 really yeah. close for me. Um, Claire Gallagher was the Western States 100 winner. She also uh, won way too cool uh, the 50K early season in California, which, geez, every year that race is getting more and more competitive. There are 15 really fast women at way too cool this year, and she won it. And then top 10, eighth place at the North Face 50. Um, again, not a ton of races, but um, what she did, she did. And she did it well. All right, Toph, your turn. Women's so of the year. Meg and I have, have good wa wavelengths going here today on our ballot. So maybe <laughs> maybe it's, uh, I'm going to bring in somebody um, else next year just so you can disagree with each other. <laughs> well, uh, probably if we were doing uh, six through ten, you'd have a lot more banter. Oh, um, but... Um, uh, I agree. I, I think the, the women's side was awesome this year. Um, so many great performances and um, the competition keeps getting better and better. I had Courtney um, also uh, ranked number one f uh, for ultra of the year. And, and really I think Megan, um, her comments are just, um, I would echo her comments around uh, Tarawara, Madeira, UTMB, um, all just exceptional performances. And, and Courtney is just setting the standard on every surface in many regards. Um, 
in every type of trail condition in every region of the world. And, um, it's been great to see. Um, so I had her at number one, I think, um, you know, it's interesting, uh, your, your comments on, on, um, EO, I, I had, um, and, and when I think about, you know, EO, she's absolutely on my, my top 10. I I've known EO since the, the day she began, uh, really embarking on ultra running and she's one of the most cerebral focused and intense runners. And there's no question that, um, TNF and Lake Sonoma for, for me were two of the most competitive 50 mile races on trail in the world this year, especially on the women's side. They were, they had absolutely stacked and talented women's fields. Um, and, uh, black Canyon as well was, was also, uh, really strong. But for me, um, those, those longer distances, I had Camille Heron ranked, uh, second. Um, and I, I absolutely prioritized, um, her, uh, 24 hour, um, world record performance and also her win at Tarawera. She ran in the slightly less competitive hundred mile distance, but she still won it. And, um, and I think she won it with a, uh, a massive course record as well. Um, and then, um, she had a fast overall, uh, 50 K at Hennepin. Um, so those three for me, um, were a strong cluster. I, I do think she's still finding her, um, her legs on the most competitive trail ultras in the world, um, with Lake Snowman in Western States being, um, tough DNFs for her. But, um, but those three other performances for me, um, ranked her, um, uh, above the rest. And, and a lot of, a lot of that really was anchored on that, um, world record performance. Um, and then third, um, I had Claire Gallagher, um, for all the, all the reasons, um, Megan described again, you know, second fastest Western States of all time. Uh, Ellie Greenwood and I were, were chatting at Robinson flat this year and she's like, Oh man, I don't know. Is it gonna, is it gonna go this year? <laughs> and, um, she had, she, she had a really, um, great year, the year she set the record. And, um, I think, um, you know, it's getting closer, um, but it's going to have to wait another year or maybe more. Um, but, uh, Claire's performance was exceptional. She never let the fact that, um, Courtney was well out in front of her, distract her from the, the business. And, and she really ran, you know, in hindsight, it absolutely clinical race at Western States, really beautiful race. Um, and I agree with you way too cool, incredibly, um, fast and competitive 50k and um solid performance at uh tnf endurance challenge so um she ranked number three um and um and like you had um 
uh, rank there, Megan. I, you know, Brittany Peterson was mm. was right there. I mean, you know, she and Claire. It was really much the same way with Jared Hazen and and um, Walmsley at Western States this year. Claire and Brittany. Um, and had a, really an exceptional uh, head-to-head competition at Western States. I mean, it's interesting that you guys had some points of commonality, but you also had uh, a lot of points of difference. And I think that, that that really illustrates this whole apples, oranges, and bananas concept that we were discussing earlier. When you start to combine all of those into an entire body of work, it starts to get complicated. And then you get the DNFs that you have to throw in or even the underperformances, which is something we really didn't talk about that a whole lot, but some of the underperformances that actually get thrown in, it really paints this kind of complicated picture. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. That's why I, you know, probably the best example is, you know, college football rankings where, you know, you've got different, different teams playing all over uh, the country right now. And, um, and there's constant debate in, in, um, in college football for the same reasons. It's, it's really, really difficult um, when you start comparing track to road to trail, and then you start comparing distances. I'll give you an example. You know, now you've got new distances, right? You've got the, the ultra backyard um, event that happens. I know some people sort of had that event play into their voting process. We now have anchoring in, you know, firmly this new 200 to 240 mile distance, Michael McKnight won. And I think he set the course record on two of the three 200 mile races. And so how do you view that? You know, I, I actually, just to provoke the conversation, um, I had Michael McKnight ranked on my top 10 and my guess is he probably didn't on most folks because most voters, because, you know, they're sort of looking at 50 K to hundred miles. I think it will be interesting now that you, you know, you got Tour de Giant, you've got these 200 mile races in the U S are those going to be come, um, more prevalent in people's voting. I don't know, but I do think it's a, it's an interesting question because that's apples, oranges, bananas, and pears. You know, it just, it's just one other variable that's even further out there. Maybe, maybe it's watermelon or or pumpkins. Um, Pomegranates. Okay. (laughs) It's it's definitely, um, I think it's, it's challenge. It's making the voting more challenging. And I actually think conversations like this are helpful because I think, um, you know, the, this has always been an organic and really homegrown sport. And that's what makes the community so awesome. And I think the community voting, um, uh, for ultra runner of the year, the way we do, it makes it really cool and organic. We don't have a governing body with very precise, um, algorithms that spit out who the ultra runner of the year was. I mean, this is like subjectivity and I like that about it. And, um, but I think these sorts of conversations can help inform the voters, open the conversation and also, um, uh, make our voting in future years um, uh, uh, may perhaps a little bit more balanced and um, uh, and in line with where the community believes the most inspiring performance coming from. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've heard people talk about, well, why don't we develop a, a road ultra runner of the year award? And why don't we 
develop a shorter distance trail ultra and a longer distance trail ultra. And, you know, you could parse out types of performances or types of terrain to the nth degree in our sport. Like we've got incredible niches to our niche, but I also, I, 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 also think that doing that is like um, kind of like giving everybody a war an award and um, sort of conglomerating it together and trying, um, you know, doing our collective best, like including lots of different voices and perspectives and takes on the sport in like coming to a, um, you know, a small gr- group consensus on all of the ultra runners together helps to elevate, you know, those those runners collective performances and those those runners themselves. I mean, to me, it's pretty cool that, you know, you can um, sort of sit down on a with a piece of paper, your computer and, you know, compare competitive depth and, you know, how long this course record has existed on this race and um, how close the top 10 finishers were at this race and try to come up with a, you know, combination objective, subjective reasoning on it. It's, it's fascinating. And there's, I mean, there, there might be a few wrong answers, but there are a lot of right answers for sure. Well, Megan, not, not to disappoint you too much, but I I'm, we're in, in the spirit of giving everybody an award. I've got something for both of you guys to think about. <laughs> everybody gets, an oh, award. Boy, everybody gets an award. No, I, int- I intentionally did not uh, prepare you for this because I wanted you to be able to think on your feet. But one of, one of the unique features of 2019, of the ultra running racing scene in 2019, I feel is that the racing itself was r- extremely interesting. The heads up, mano a mano racing between people was fascinating on several different races. And so what I want you guys to think about for like next, maybe we can talk about this for the next like five or 10 minutes is if there was a category for race of the year, Ooh. what would you give it to? And I, I to 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 start it off, I've kind of narrowed it down to four, and you can you can add one in if you if you really want to. But the four that I have were Jim Walmsley and Jared Hazen at Western States, mm. Brittany P- Peterson and Claire Gallagher at Western States where Claire, I was at the pointed rocks aid station and saw Claire take the whole shot onto the single track, like a freaking cross country mountain biker. It was awesome. We need more of that. Of, of course, E. Wang and anime Flynn at uh, Lake Sonoma. Lake Sonoma. And then finally Paul Capel and Xavier at UTMB. Which one of those represents or another one of your choosing represents the race of 2019 megan you get to go first oh my gosh can you remind me how far apart pao and xavier were, were they <laughs> oh, like seven minutes look at peace yeah uh, no, no. more 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 they were separate yeah yeah it wasn't oh, it was okay, o- it, it only unfolded though in the last was it like 20 miles tougher where they were actually pretty close through yeah it was the last 20 miles it was they were like 12 minutes apart up until literally like the last 20 miles Go, going up the bovine is really sort of where he started to break the, the elastic a little bit on Xavier. Really? Those are four awesome races. Yeah, they I'm, really interested. Are. I'm really interested in Megan's response. Man, my <laughs> mind is, writing my down mind notes is, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. My Megan. mind is blown. Like remembering that all of that happened in one year. I know. That's just right? one year. You guys. I know. So <laughs> badass. Like the sport on to, to, I'll get, I'll buy you a little bit of time, Megan, with some commentary here. 
the, the, the sport of ultra running would be well served to have more of that because that it's things like that. It's competition like that head on head where the athletes are not separated by a whole lot all the way down to the very end that creates like really intriguing storylines. And Megan, you, you probably had the experience for this, for interviewing a lot of these people at the finish line. Like a lot of times those interviews and those stories are the ones that draw people into the sport that normally wouldn't, you know, they normally wouldn't be a fan because it's unfathomable to think that after, you know, 19 hours of racing that two people are literally still side by side duking it out for every last inch. Yeah. hundred miles, hundred, hundred mile races going down to the line or on the track at Western States or, you know, in the final one K and, through the streets of Chamonix where like people are trying to high five you and you're trying to well, stay there, in front of the person behind you. There was a, <laughs> there was a track race right at Western States on the women's side this year. So maybe that could be, maybe that could be, you know, maybe that could be item number five. I'm kind of picking the winners obviously for the, for yeah. the quote unquote yeah. race of the year. I mean, you could, who knows how far down the list you can go, but anyway, Megan, let's hear your commentary on what you think could be the race of 2019. I guess I'm going to have to go with Jim Walmsley, Jared Hazen, both being under course record. Uh, Jim's course record from the previous year at Western States this year. The the fact that they, uh, you know, were training partners, friends, but also like competitors all the way to the end um, and doing that in not like not perfect conditions. Like, you know, it was a it was a pretty hot day at Western States this year. Like conditions were not right for running course record pace, at least as, as history tells us. Um, but they, they both did. That was, that those were incredible runs. I, I, I don't think, and I, I hope that we don't forget those runs for a long, long time. It, it's hard to go against any of those, but I might be with you, Megan. I mean, once again, Jared, dude, if you're listening to this, you are getting screwed because you're 1426 at Western <laughs> States. Should go down as one of the. I mean, it's the second best. It's, sec, it's the second fastest time on the course, uh, as you mentioned, right? It went under. And Jim it Wamsley. broke the course record. Yeah, he broke. He broke his 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 buddy's uh, course record, right? I know it's crazy. Two it's minutes, cra- I think. Two yeah. and a half minutes. Yeah. So it's it's a once again it's a it's a it's a crazy. I'm I'm kind of with you on that piece, Megan, because both like both of those athletes ran so incredibly well on one of the most competitive stages for ultra running on the planet to have it come down to such a small margin is just absolutely incredible. And the fact they were, they were only separated by eight or nine minutes at the river. I think Tover, you were there. Do you remember that time split? Yeah. I want to say it was even closer, but that, that sounds about right. Yeah. Eight minutes. Yeah. Crazy, crazy race. Awesome. race. All right, Tover, who you got for race of the year? So, so first of all, I think they're, those are four of the greatest, um, races of the year. So I would, I, I like your, your, your picks. If I look at pow and, and, um, Xavier, um, I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I actually think Powell's performance, if we're ranking global performances of the year, I think Powell's performance was one of the, one of the greatest performances in UTMB history. Um, even though it wasn't a course record, the way he ran it, but for me, um, he he won it um, hand, I, handily is a hard way to describe it, but he pulled away from 
Zave. And so, you know, with really with about 20 miles to go, the he, it was clear he was just going to keep pulling away. So it, that didn't rank as is absolute race of the year. Um, it, Claire in, in Brittany's race at Western States was incredible. I mean, I think those guys, I think they were pointed rocks together. Yeah. They I was there to that, yeah. to pointed rocks together. And I think Jared and, and, um, and Walmsley were separated only by a few minutes at pointed rocks as well. So it was both those were incredible performances. And, and, and I think those two would, would, would be the two races that, that raise closest to each other to the top. Um, a lot of that has to do with they were both aware of how close they were. I think EO and Anna May's race was also, I mean, that was, that was a, that was a brutal attrition based race as well. I don't know if they were both at, well, I actually, they were because with, with that final aid station, they would cross each other and know how far they're separated. Um, so four great races, but for me, I, I'm aligned with you guys. It's clearly it's, it's Jared and, and, um, and Walmsley as the race of the year. And, and I think, um, they got the very best out of each other for me, like the, 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 the best race of the year is when the, the two athletes that are head to head are getting the absolute best out of each other. And it's clear those two got the best out of each other. They both beat the course record at Western States and, um, Jared wouldn't have had that run without Walmsley and Walmsley wouldn't have had the run without Jared. So, um, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, uh, Jared still somehow wins in this thing. <laughs> no, we're, we're just trying to give Jared more credit. He's getting screwed. Well, <laughs> Jared's a better runner because of who he trains with and who he runs with and who he races with, but he just, you know. Being the bridesmaid is just really tough sometimes. You guys would have had another like 20 hours of work on your hands if that was actually a category. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But let's let's end off with like one last little piece of banter. I'd be remiss to, to talk about this since we have two people that are on the line that not only are incredibly knowledgeable within the sport of North American ultra running, but also worldwide. I mean, Topher, you were the first, you know, American to compete at UTMB and Megan, you, you spend way too much time in planes and in foreign <laughs> countries and obscure places covering the sport of ultra running. What is it going to take for us to do this type of exercise internationally? What is it going to take for, for a group of people to sit down and say, this is the ultra run of the year period with no qualifications on region or whatever. How, how can we make that happen? Topher, you can go first. Uh, well, so I think there's, there's some, um, analytical tools that can help us do that actually, um, that exist today and they're going to get more robust. I think there's two things. One, um, so ETRA, um, ITRA ITRA those International Trail Running Association has a as a I think right now running probably the best algorithms or formula for um classifying and ranking athletes I think having um some tool that will provide the objectivity tool to the subjectivity of the events is, is key. And I think that tool is in the process of building out each year. There's literally hundreds and, th and thousands of races that automate and, and load into that tool. So I think that's really going to help um, 
for call it a global ultra run of the year. And then two, I think, you know, you have the UTWT that has um, continues to take shape and form. And I think as it continues to take shape and form, um, I think it will help identify the most competitive races by default. There's sort of, are a group of competitive races that are that are that are emerging. We talked a lot about many of them today, but I think those two things, the objective tool and the emergence of clearly the most competitive races where you can have more head-to-head competition. If you talk to any of the best athletes in ultra running, the number one thing they'll say that they love the most is competing in the most competitive fields. They love it because they know they can get the best out of themselves. And and I think I think the more that um, brands and events and athletes can help bring that together, the more robust we can move towards a, a global um, uh, ability to do this on a global scale. Megan, I think it could be done. I don't. I don't think it's that. Um, that different or that much um, more difficult than uh, what we're doing with Ultra Running Magazine's North American Ultra Runner of the Year. I think it's a ton of work for whatever body it is to take it on um, oh, in oh, terms good. of. Oh, go ahead. In terms of, yeah, like um, the 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 list of people who make the make the votes for Ultra Running Magazine's Ultra Runner of the Year, they do a really good job of. Um, cultivating a group of people that's like, you know, road specialists, track specialists, a few athletes, but athletes from different disciplines, um, you know, people who are involved, you know, a, a long, long time with the sport. And then, you know, people who have newer perspectives. So uh, gathering a, a, a voting panel type scenario on that global scale that um, getting people with knowledge bases that represent various parts of the scene because there's just not, I mean, there, there's some communication about, you know, what, what's happening in different countries and different regions. But for example, like Chinese trail ultra running is exploding oh, right now insane. And, and we, we can't get a grip on it. They're yeah. so competitive there, but we can't get the information. It's just not getting out of the country. Um, so yeah, like, uh, there are a couple, you know, those geographic political barriers to cross. I do, I think, like the combination of the subjective objective tools that Topher is talking about would be uh, critical to the success of a global ultra runner of the year type thing. So at least people had like a starting base, um, which for us, for ultra running magazines, ultra runner of the year, Tropical John Menninger's gigantic spreadsheet serves as sort of our, um, our, our yeah our analytical starting tool and then we 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 jump off from that but yeah a, a a tool to start us off plus yeah figuring out how to jump all those geographic political barriers and and get a group of really knowledgeable people to talk to talk about it man i can, thought can I, be done not that hard but a ton of time oh uh, man i thought <laughs> you guys were going to run away from that a thousand miles an hour but uh it seems like we have the first two panelists right here for the international <laughs> ultra run of the year i'm gonna sign you guys up 2020 you guys can collaboratively like put your heads together and you can come up with the first award how's that sound just don't make the due date uh, Christmas Eve. Jofer <laughs> <laughs> jo- was definitely up wrapping his presents after he turned yeah. in his oh, for the year man. ballot. Uh, that is true. 
<laughs> well, you guys, this was awesome. It was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate it. I also think, uh, let me just to extend some appreciation from the community at large to what you guys do during this process. It really is fun to watch. And I know that there are a lot of other people out there that appreciate the efforts of not only YouTube, but also the entire panel uh, that votes on this because it does take a lot of time, a lot of effort. And I think that one thing that both of you guys illustrated very well is that you take that job seriously. You put a a lot of time and effort into it and it is not easy. So we thank you guys as a community and I hope we get to keep doing this. We'll run it again next year and have just as much banter and fun with it. Right on, right on, Jason and, and Megan. Great uh, spending time and looking forward to the inspiring uh, performances of 2020. Yeah, the next decade of ultra running. Here we go. Oh my gosh, here we go. All right, thanks, you guys. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, thanks. All right, trail runners, what'd you think? That was a fun episode. I always have a lot of fun with those guys. They really know the sport very well. I don't think a lot of people appreciate how hard it is to have that type of depth of knowledge of what is actually going on. It's not like they just woke up one day and said, okay, here are my top 10 votes for you know each of these categories and boom, I'm done. It takes a lot of time consistently throughout the year to be able to curate these these types of lists. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, that that Megan mentioned is she actually loses sleep over it, which is pretty hilarious. But it also shows you how seriously uh, each of these panelists uh, take this this whole voting process. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I do have one effort of full disclosure kind of at the end of this, and I've, I've written a couple of articles on this. I have no vote in this whole process. Um, I, I was very flattered that a couple of years ago, uh, John Menninger actually asked me to, to, to be one of the panelists. And I just felt it was too big of a conflict of interest. So I said no. But that doesn't uh, stop me, obviously, from offering a little bit of banter and curating some commentary on the whole process and what we think about these performances and these fine athletes that uh, we can all look up to and admire. Thanks a lot to Topher for your time and your effort. Thanks a lot to Megan and the whole I Run Far team for not only your thoughts and effort uh, during this podcast, but really throughout the year and really helping bring ultra running to life and making it such a fun sport uh, to watch. Thank you guys. Thank you to the listeners. This show is nothing without the trail runners that listen to it. If you have not done so, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Give it a quick rating. That helps us out a lot in spreading the message. Really appreciate the love and support that this podcast has gotten so far. I promise I'm going to bring my best each and every week and keep producing these things. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. I hope you guys have fun with it as well. Uh, Thank you guys again. And we will see everybody out on the trails.